This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. This show is brought to you by the Buddhist Youth Association every Sunday, bringing Buddhism to the community of the Waikato. We also give away a range of free English or Chinese Buddhism books, MP3 or tapes on Buddhism. If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146, Highland Park, Howick, Auckland. Or you can phone 092713377. Buddhist Youth Association, respectful, beneficial, empowering. Welcome to the program and thanks for joining us. Let's take a moment to think about our motivation as we usually do. By now you'll know that bodhicitta, the mind to attain enlightenment for the benefit of all beings, is the best motivation because it has all beings at its heart. So if you can, make that your purpose for being with the program today. If you can't, then at least think about your own liberation from samsaric existence. So let's take a short moment to think about our motivation. Thank you. Returning to Tonglen, we start the practice just using our minds, imagining the physical or mental suffering other beings are going through, and then in our minds taking that suffering onto ourselves. We then imagine our happiness leaving our body and going to the other being or beings we are concentrating on and think that it brings them the well-being that they want. The suffering is commonly visualized as black smoke, tar and so on, which is directed onto a representation of our self-grasping and selfishness. Sanghikadra uses a black stone or dot for the self-representation, but I have also been taught to use an ember that bursts into flame when the black suffering comes into contact with it. Whichever way you practice, the suffering substance, that is the tar or smoke and so on, is consumed until nothing of it remains. Also the representation of the self-grasping, like the dot or the stone, diminishes until it disappears. Our happiness can be visualized as pure light, going out and filling the beings that need it. When you become familiar with the visualizations, you can then practice with the breath, breathing in the black smoke or tar and breathing out light. And that's just to remind you of how Tonglen is practiced. Dr. Alex Burzen goes on more deeply into it. But before we describe that, not least for the sake of continuity, let's just remember what he said in last week's program. He pointed out that we are not doing this practice to make an immediate and mind-blowing effect on somebody's suffering. For instance, you may practice Tonglen for your sick mother, but that doesn't mean she's going to jump out of bed completely cured and ready to boogie at the next moment. Dr. Burzen says most of the time we won't see an appreciable effect in the suffering of the beings we're doing the practice for unless we have incredibly pure motivation, perfect concentration, bodhicitta and a really strong karmic connection with the other being. We also need to overcome self-cherishing and ego-grasping and all such plagues. Otherwise, he says, we can't realistically expect it to work. But what is valuable in doing the practice is our wish for it to work, even though we can really only create the circumstances for positive karma to ripen or negative karma to weaken. 
Another powerful thing we are doing with the practice is reducing our own self-grasping and self-cherishing, which manifests as a desire to not get involved. We think it's too difficult. We have our own problems to deal with. It takes a great deal of courage to think, instead, I will get involved. I will take it upon myself. May I have all that suffering. So we actively do it to overcome the self-cherishing. The wish, though, has to be sincere. We really have to want to take on the suffering of others for Tong Len to work, to build this great courage. Dr. Burson then makes the vital point that we don't, however, hang on to the suffering. It dissolves into the understanding of emptiness and the subtlest level of mind, the clear light mind, at our heart. So it comes, we experience it, and then it dissipates into emptiness and clear light mind. As Dr. Burson says, it passes through. If we don't let it pass through in this way, we might get stuck in the suffering, and then we'll hardly be able to benefit anybody. When we are stuck in a lot of misery, it's often difficult to think of anybody else, never mind wanting to do something to make them happy. But by using the subtlest mind to dissolve the suffering, we touch base with our Buddha nature qualities, which we can then use to help others gain happiness. He says doing it this way makes us stronger against our ego resistance. We're not only taking on another's suffering, but also the afflictive emotions at the base of that suffering. So you can see that this is not a beginner's practice. It's actually a very advanced practice, and we have to do it slowly and carefully. In taking on the negativity or negative qualities, we must do so with the understanding of the suffering that is involved with them. For instance, taking on the stupidity of others doesn't just mean becoming more and more stupid. It means understanding the suffering that goes with being stupid. To digress a little, I'd like to share a blog called Suffering Stupidity in ageofautism.com that has something to say about this. Although the author, Natalie Palombo, does not write about Tong Len, in a way she practices it, taking on the suffering both of, of her autistic brother and the stupidity of those who disparage special needs people. She writes, I am 18 years old and a rising senior in high school. I am the younger sister of a 21-year-old brother with low verbal autism. Anthony just aged out of special education in June and is now home full-time with my mother. I just spent a wonderful four weeks away attending pre-college at the Ringling College of Art and Design. I want to make visual effects and animation my career and Ringling is my first choice for college. This experience meant the world to me and helped me prepare for my future, which includes caring for Antony in our later years as brother and sister. As with every experience in my life, Antony's autism is never far from my mind. During my free time at pre-college, I stumbled across an article in which the rap artist 50 Cent used the term autistic to insult a follower of his on Twitter. To add to the degradation, he posted... I don't want no special ed kids on my timeline follow somebody else. Shortly after that, there was an MSNBC report on the theater shootings in Aurora, Colorado, at the midnight showing of Batman. Joe Scarborough of MSNBC, while discussing the young suburban gunman, stated that, These people are somewhere, I believe, on the autism scale. 
Reading these statements made me cringe to think that these influential people reach a large audience and use their status to further this kind of ignorant chatter. Even though both men publicly apologized, the damage was already done. I've noticed a trend among younger entertainers to use the term autistic as the new R word, as it has become socially unfashionable to use the term retarded as a negative descriptive the term autistic seems to be taking its place. I've heard internet personalities refer to someone as autistic when they want to insult their intelligence or mock their behavior. I live in a world where it is close to impossible to get proper help for my brother, and now his condition is being trivialized to being nothing more than a term used to insult. I fear the word autism will become as meaningless as current slang. With the epidemic growing, this is especially troubling to think no one will take it seriously. I face a lifetime of being a caregiver for my brother, and therefore social attitudes and trends affect my life. Celebrities have more impact than ever with the 24-hour power of the internet and social media. The trivialization of autism is impacting my generation. I've noticed it in the terminology of my peers. Shocking, thoughtless and insensitive comments about special needs are masquerading as edgy and bold. I hear commentary that imitates trendy social attitudes and it feels fake, harsh and irresponsible to me. Witnessing this trend makes me feel isolated. Twice at pre-college, I was faced with a choice of holding in my feelings when I heard thoughtless chatter or expressing my concerns and risking ridicule. Both instances occurred during mealtimes when pre-college students were expected to bond and socialize. In the first occurrence, I heard a male student remark with laughter about a girl with autism who had psychological damage and had suffered sexual abuse. Without hesitation, I responded angrily, stating that my brother has low verbal autism. With my upset obvious, he quickly explained that he was talking about a character in a movie he'd seen. He looked genuinely concerned to have offended me and his expression of genuine remorse prompted me to apologize to him privately for misunderstanding him. I explained that most people are offensive with no remorse and he responded with sincere understanding. While I was happy to see a rare demonstration of humanity, I felt exposed and needed assurance from home that I had acted responsibly. The second occurrence didn't end as compassionately. I'd made a humorous observation that I was the only one at the table without a smartphone. One girl remarked that I was a special snowflake, which was meant to be a playful insult. Even though she had not meant to offend me, the significance of using the term special as an insult was not lost on me. I cautioned her that using the word special as an insult in social situations could offend someone and explained that I had an older brother with special needs. She casually remarked that her uncle had special needs and she makes jokes all the time. My heart sank and I was speechless. No one seemed to notice how upset I was. I simply left the table with no explanation. I did not know how to relate to someone that could make special needs jokes while having a family member with special needs. Again, I had to reach home for guidance. My mother advised me that the population of people with special needs is just as diverse as any other population. 
she too had made the mistake of assuming that everyone would share the same level of sensitivity, only to find that she was wrong. My mother told me I didn't have to advocate for my brother and expose my privacy in every social situation. She reminded me that I had better ways of expressing my devotion to Antony and that I should make the most out of my pre-college experience while I was there. I can't relate to a go-along-with-the-crowd mentality that dehumanizes my brother. I end up feeling alone frequently, but I am alone for the right reasons. I could ignore my responsibilities towards my brother to imitate behavior and make acquaintances, but it would feel wrong. The dismissive attitude towards autism is at best fleeting and at worst a prevailing attitude, but my devotion to my brother is lifelong. I'm not immune to thoughtless banter. I cannot sacrifice my integrity for shallow acceptance. It seems to me that this is a very practical way of taking on the suffering of others and giving one's happiness for them. Compare Natalie's attitude to her brother and the people who disparage those with special needs with the attitude of the girl who makes special needs jokes, even though she has a special needs family member. It takes courage to react as Natalie is doing. We cannot say the same thing about the other girl. Even though Natalie may react angrily, her concern is for those who disparage to have greater empathy, which would lead to both their greater peace of mind and the happiness of those they run down. Dr. Alex Burzen says there are many ways of approaching the practice of Tong Lin, and this is one of them, although perhaps not quite what he intended. He says we can recognize the afflictions and the suffering of others in ourselves, or we can contemplate the fact that we have the karmic potential to develop the same afflictions and suffering. In such ways, we can more closely identify with someone who is suffering and realize that in many ways we are related. We can also take on the suffering of all others, whether we have their suffering or affliction or not, with the powerful wish to destroy our own self-cherishing. We do the practice with something he calls forceful visualizations. A simple visualization Dr. Burzen calls it the light version of Tonglen, is imagining the suffering and problems of others coming into oneself as black light and our happiness going out to them as white light. However, His Holiness the Dalai Lama and Sir Kong Rinpoche explain it in terms of three stages. Dr. Burzen says, The first level is to imagine. Let's say if we're talking about the suffering or the disturbing emotions, sicknesses and so on, to imagine that these come in in the form of really dirty substances, like oil and grease and ink and all these sorts of dirty types of things, and that these come into us, which naturally we have a resistance for. I don't want to get myself dirty. Soot and coal mixed with water. I mean just really dirty stuff. I don't want to get myself dirty, and so there's that resistance. The self-cherishing comes up strongly. So you imagine that coming in. Then you think of the tendencies, the tendencies or the seeds of the disturbing motions, all the tendencies or potentials for the negative karmic potentials, and that this now comes in in the form of diarrhea, vomit, urine, pus, blood, these types of things, which we would have even more resistance to wanting to take on and actually have inside us and to deal with it. So it's a stronger visualization. And the third level, which would be habits that are supporting the disturbing emotions and karma, we imagine that this comes in in the form of whatever it is that we're most afraid of. So whether it's spiders, snakes, scorpions, fire, whatever it is that we are most, most afraid of, you imagine that this comes in 
and deal with that. As I said, it comes to the heart and dissolves in the heart, but we are willing to experience it. You don't just keep it inside you. That is why I explained it has to be done with an understanding of voidness and dissolving it like going down the drain in the bathtub. However, we have to be willing to experience it. It's a big mistake to just hold on to this truly existent me and this truly existent dirty substance and then I'm keeping it inside me. It has to be done with some understanding of voidness because it's the understanding of voidness plus this type of visualization that together smashes through the ego grasping, the self-cherishing, based on thinking of all disadvantages of self-cherishing that comes before this meditation. He goes on to say that by making the visualizations more and more terrible, we work against the tendency to only superficially benefit others. The attitude, that superficial attitude is expressed by, well, let's just get rid of the superficial symptoms of your sickness, but not really go down to the root of the sickness. I can't be bothered to go deeper. Using an example of helping a young homeless person, he says giving money for a meal is a superficial type of help, while taking the trouble to delve into the reasons for the kid's homelessness and addressing their emotional and psychological needs is a much deeper assistance. He says, So in applying these visualizations, to go into a deeper and deeper level of the causes, that really brings up the courage to go all the way in terms of helping others. So although one can do a lighter version of Tonglen, I think it's important not to trivialize Tonglen. This, I think, is very sad. When, oh, it's so easy, and any beginner can do it. Just black light in and white light out and everybody be happy. That really not only trivializes it, but makes us not have the interest to go deeper. He encourages a day-to-day practice of Tonglen. For instance, when we meet a friend with a difficult problem, we can take the problem onto ourselves. And he also ties the practice to the previous verses of Longley Tampa's text. He says, If somebody whom we have been kind to and raised like a child says very cruel things to us, and so on, we take that on ourselves as well, taking on whatever disturbing emotion and so on that has caused it in them, and give them the solution to that. Or if somebody, as in an earlier verse, out of envy says horrible things to us and so on, we can take that on. So we can work in that way, and in these cases, we should work with specific persons, or we can also do it with animals. He mentions that we can also practice Tonglen for those in the six realms, the hells, the hungry ghosts, animals, azures and gods, as well as our human realm, but admits that it is much more effective doing it for actual specific beings we know about. But when we ourselves have a serious problem, he says, we ourselves are experiencing the sadness of, let's say, a sickness, or the sadness of old age, or the sadness of a relationship ending, or a strong jealousy is going on, or anger, or something like that, then we can imagine taking on the similar type of problem from everybody, not from specific beings. So it all depends on the circumstance. I think it's important in any type of meditation, particularly in an analytical meditation, or a meditation like this, that it doesn't become stale by always doing exactly the same thing with exactly the same disturbing motion and exactly the same person every day. Then it loses its effectiveness. We need to apply it to situations as they arise in our life. And it's very helpful when there's somebody that, as I said, upsets us. Rather than getting upset, do the Tonglen practice with them. Because then, when we're upset, obviously the self-cherishing is even stronger. That's taking on the suffering. 
Then we come to the giving part of Tongnen. And Dr. Berzin says that usually what is taught is the giving of material things, houses, money, whatever people need on a material level. But we can also imagine giving qualities, insights and so on, right up to Buddhahood. Be creative, he says. If we are using the light version, let the white light fill them with insights into their problem and their sources, as well as how to be free of them and, and so on, all the way up to Buddhahood. Also, he says, I think when we are dealing with our own problems, let's say the problem of a sickness or the problem of old age, that we accept it. You really have to accept yourself that I have my own problem. Geshe Chakawa says we start with ourselves in the Tonglen practice in accepting our own problems. Rather than denying them and not wanting to deal with them, deal with the problems. We have now the problems that we'll have in the future, the problem of old age, the problem of how I'm going to deal with my parents dying, how I'm going to deal with my own death, my own future sicknesses, these sorts of things, and work with it now so that we don't just get completely shocked and unprepared when these things happen. That's very, very helpful. Also the sufferings that we might have in the future lives as well. In terms of how we deal with sickness and old age, we can also think in terms of giving to others, showing to others the dignity of how to deal with old age and sickness, while keeping one's self-dignity, while not complaining all the time, not, while not feeling sorry for ourselves. This type of thing is very helpful to give to others as well. Not only that they are able to act like that, but we show everybody and demonstrate to everybody how we can deal in a proper, healthy way with respect to this. So there are many ways in which we can practice this Tonglen. He makes the point again that it's not a concrete I taking on the concrete suffering of somebody else, which that concrete I then concretely experiences. If we practice like that, we, be we can become overwhelmed with suffering. Many psychiatrists feel like that. Many nurses and doctors as well feel like that, he says. All these horrible problems of other people, I'm just taking it on and keeping it inside me. He says, doing the practice like that would be like doing the severe ascetic practices the Buddha specifically advised us against. We should also not feel like a martyr doing this practice. He says, a martyr is somebody that does this practice really in terms of, if one looks at it critically, I am the martyr. So there's a bit of grasping to a self to that, with a pity looking down on others. It doesn't mean that all martyrs are like that. But there is that association that one has with martyrdom, and we're certainly not practicing being a martyr with this. The main thing you're working on is the willingness to experience it. He quotes Sirkon Rinpoche, who had a very special karmic connection with His Holiness the Dalai Lama, and who died while practicing Tonglen for an obstacle in the life of His Holiness. Sirkon Rinpoche always taught that we should be willing to die doing Tonglen. By doing so, he said, one could, and I quote, build an unbelievable positive force that can take you to a much higher level of realization. As an astronaut who died in an accident would become a very great hero and everyone would support his family, so a great master who died doing Tonglen would be able to reach an attainment that would take care of his disciples, inspiring them and teaching them. In more practical terms, Dr. Berzin says, so, just as an example of practicing like I sometimes do, let's say your computer crashes and then you go into the kitchen and a glass breaks and then the light, light bulb burns out. Instead of getting upset about it and depressed, you say, more, give me more, may more come, 
Let's see what's going to come next. And in a sense, you're welcoming it, taking it on from others. But that doesn't mean that I then walk into the living room and smash my television on the floor and break all my windows, which would be the analogy of beating myself on the back, to use an absurd example. This is a level of Tonglen that is a beginner's level, and it's helpful, and in a sense, you almost laugh at it. You laugh in the face of these types of problems. It doesn't mean that you don't take it seriously, but you don't get upset about it. This puts me in mind of a funny article from the 6th of March edition of The Advertiser, an online newspaper about Adelaide in Australia. It is called Cathy Lett, Laughing in the Face of Adversity. Cathy Lett is the author, and it involves her friend Billy Connolly. Cathy Lett writes, With a dear cousin in the direct path of the Queensland cyclones, I was nail-chewingly glued to news reports when a commentary came on screen about a terrified woman stranded in an elevator. Precariously suspended in that claustrophobic cube in pitch darkness, the wind howling outside, she managed to get a message to the outside world. Send in Chardonnay and chocolate. I smiled at the woman's cheeky charm, but also admired her ability to laugh in the face of adversity. Humor allows you to strap a shock absorber to your brain. Laughter is nature's penicillin. When my darling dad died quite suddenly, three years ago, my beloved mum, three dear sisters and I were shell-shocked with grief and totally heartbroken. But what strength we drew from the moments of gallows humour we shared by his deathbed. Laughter became a pressure valve, releasing our pain. When my good mate Billy Connolly was diagnosed with prostate cancer, Parkinson's disease and hearing loss all on the same day, he reacted the way any brilliant comedian would. He laughed. Ironic, isn't it, Cathy, that life keeps the punchline till the end? When I offered sympathy, he shrugged off my concern. I've also got anorexia nervosa, an irrational fear of ugly raincoats. The jests kept coming. I've just heard that Parky, that's Michael Parkinson, has colon cancer. I've been dying to call him and say, that's nothing, I've got Parkinson's disease. She goes on, I was employing many bleak words while bemoaning the grim state of the world to Billy. All the dismal news from ISIS to Ebola, I complained, was making it harder to stay optimistic. I know that's true, Billy agreed, but I find it hard to be too depressed about the state of the world when everyone walks towards me smiling. Strolling the Sydney harbour front a few moments later, I saw what he meant. Every approaching pedestrian broke into a beaming grin at the sight of the Celtic comedian. Billy, they exclaimed, love you! or Big Ian, thanks for all the joy. Billy was positively spreading joy like jam on all and sundry. It's the same at his gigs, where the audience has to be hospitalized from hilarity. I was worried the crowd would have to get their jaws collectively rewired after dislocation from raucous guffawing. New research published in The Guardian proves that laughter really is the best medicine. Apparently laughing unleashes the same health-boosting chemicals as a bout of vigorous exercise. It brings about a drop in blood pressure and boosts the immune system. So obviously, a daily dose of Billy Connolly should be prescribed by doctors. As I write, Billy is headed up to cyclone-devastated Queensland. I mentioned to him that I hoped there was enough time to put the roof back on the gig. Yes, at least that would save me from doing a topless evening with Billy Connolly, he said. As I told my cousin while she was mopping after the cyclone, laugh and the whole world laughs with you. Cry and your mascara runs. And that's all for today. Thanks for joining the program. 
and I hope you'll be with us next week. Please dedicate as usual to the enlightenment of all beings everywhere. Thank you and goodbye. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com/freefm89 to find out more.